Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We are so glad that you are here. Glad that you are joining us. I uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in and hanging out with us. Hey, I know I've mentioned it to you before, but you want to check out freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. If you are someone who is looking for a step-by-step plan, a step-by-step system on exactly how you can consistently find and book gigs, you need to stop by freespeakerworkshop.com. In that free training, we're going to walk through exactly how you can be clear on who you speak to, what you speak about, how much you should be charging, and how to actually find and book gigs. So definitely make sure you check that out again over at freespeakerworkshop.com. All right. So as promised, we have Melanie Diesel who is joining us once again for she joined us last week. She's joining us next week. And then she's also joining us today as we are going to be uh, doing another co-host episode. And we've got a, a few more of these planned in the future. It seems like you guys like these. If you do like these, let us know. You can reach us on Twitter. You can catch me at Grant Baldwin or feel free to uh, reach out on Facebook or Instagram or email or whatever. And let us know, do you enjoy these episodes? Are there, do you want more of these? What do you want us to cover? What do you want us to talk about? This is one thing Melanie and I enjoy is, is getting feedback from you. And what do you want us to hear us talk about and discuss so that we make sure we cover that on an upcoming episode. So today we're going to be talking about audience interactions, how to interact and engage with your audience. So we're going to be talking about uh, why you should even consider audience interaction at all. We'll talk about the pros and cons of it, some different ways to do it. We're also going to talk about how to manage audience interaction so you don't lose control of the room. So audience interactions can be really, really important and valuable for a speaker to connect and relate with an audience and for an audience to get more out of it and feel more involved with the presentation. But it can also go sideways real quick. So you want to make sure that you know how to handle it. And we're going to discuss that today. Also going to talk about different types of scenarios and interactions that you could do with an audience and uh, the context of when certain ones make more sense than than others. So a lot to get to today, a lot to cover. So uh, let's jump right into it. Here's a conversation between myself and Miss Melanie Diesel. Enjoy. So my friends, Grant Baldwin here, joined once again by my favorite co-host, Miss Melanie Diesel. Hello, Miss Melanie. How are you today? Hello, Mr. Grant. How are you? If you, what was that? Like some <laughs> random, like you know, creepy like little... accent or something. I can't help it. I don't know. It just comes out sometimes. For those that are listening on the podcast who didn't see the video, she did like these magic spirit fingers there too. I don't even know what just trying to get the energy up, that you is, know? That's fine. That's it. That's fine. Because in fact, today we are talking about interacting with your audience. And so there's a lot of ways to do this and there's huge pros and cons to doing it and a lot of risk to doing it. So why don't you give us a uh, overview of what we're going to be covering? So basically what we're going to walk through today is what kind of the, the role that audience interaction can play when you're on stage, right? So talking a little bit more about that stagecraft, what does it mean when you're interacting with the audience? How do you do it in a way that is controlled and actually giving the desired result of asking your audience questions? And we're also going to talk through some of the scenarios where things can go awry and how you can kind of control for right. some of the uh, 
the unknowns that happen when you ask your audience to become participants in your presentation. Yeah. Let's first of all, let's kind of dig in like why audience interaction, like, because and some of it depends on the preference and the style of the speaker. Because there's some settings where audience interactions may make more sense than others. Some of it also depends on the type of setting where you're speaking. Meaning that if you're speaking to a small group of 30 people in an all-day workshop, interactions are going to look very different than if you're speaking to a, doing a keynote for you know 3,000 people. So why should speakers consider audience interactions? I mean, one of the things about audience interactions also is, like you said, it keeps people engaged. It's a little bit of a change of pace, you know, especially in a conference setting where people are going perhaps from session to session to session, you know, having something to to keep it light, to get them, either get them physically moving, get them thinking, get them shouting, making some noise, just kind of keeps the energy up, keeps people engaged and and make sure they're they're listening and paying attention. So that's always good, especially for a really long presentation, for a workshop, like you said, where that engagement is going to be key to making sure they're actually taking in all the knowledge you're sharing. Some of the fun too, like, yes, it's risky and we'll get into the risk side of it. But as a speaker, there are some actual like real raw moments that can happen in a room that maybe it's oftentimes funny or maybe something more serious and deep and emotional. But it's the type of thing that, you know, when you are just, you you have your speech, you have your talk and you're just going through regurgitating the talk and presenting the talk. There's, you know, I mean, there's a, nothing wrong with that. But when something happens, when it's clear, like everybody was a part of this, like we were like, that didn't happen, you know, that wasn't scripted or something. So I was trying to think of a scenario where, I mean, it could be anything like I remember like times where like someone would sneeze really loud in the audience, you know, and just something like silly like that. I remember doing a uh, speaking at a high school assembly several years ago and being in a school gymnasium and there's a couple kids at the top of the gym who like had to leave to go to work or something and walked down like right in the middle. And so I just walked with them and followed them out. Like, and I'm walking down the hall, like still on the mic talking to them and just like something silly and goofy like that, you know, that may pop up or happen or speaking somewhere and like someone's phone rings and it's a goofy, weird ringtone, you know? So one of those moments that like you can go with it, that someone knows like, well, that wasn't planned. It was a funny moment that we got to experience. One of those, you had to be there moments, which makes you able to connect with the audience more. It feels like. Yeah, it's true. And I think the other thing it does is it really shows your skills, right? Because like you said, sometimes when you get on the stage, you are just giving some of the same information you've given other times. So having that ability to adapt in real time to a situation, to bring in something that's happening with your audience, you know, and sometimes to acknowledge the reality because a lot of times, and and we've talked about this almost like a blooper reel before, right? Like the phone's going to ring, someone's going to sneeze, Someone drops something and it makes a loud noise. The fire alarm goes off. And the more you can just acknowledge the reality of what your audience is experiencing, the more they, they are able to connect with you and relate to you. And the more you're prepared for whatever could possibly go wrong next time too. But I think one of the best things that I like to use audience interaction for is for kind of showing them a universal experience. I speak specifically on content. And many times my audience, they think it doesn't apply to them or it won't work for me. And so being able to show like who has had this challenge and have them all see it together and then who has had this solution and see like, oh, wait, you know, they had that same challenge as me and they were able to find a solution. You know, showing that shared perspective, that universality to certain items can sometimes be a super powerful way to get the audience sort of on your side when it comes to trying to help them achieve some transformation. In kind of a different sort of context, but in in our training program, we have a a private Facebook group for speakers and we have nearly a thousand speakers that are in there. And so a lot of times when people email in and ask questions of, hey, what should I do in this? I always ask them, hey, first of all, let's talk about this in the Facebook group because 
We've got not got just, not ju- you know, my perspective or your perspective. We have a thousand different speakers who add in perspectives that bring more to the table. So like in an audience standpoint, in an audience context, there may be, you know, again, depending on how the interaction is, is done and handled, it may be the type of thing where they're bringing out things that you hadn't thought of or giving perspectives that you weren't aware of that really add to the conversation uh, or what it is that you're covering or, or talking about. So yeah, it absolutely can be really, really powerful. Now at the same time, it can be risky and it can be dangerous. So what's the downside of doing some audience interactions? Well, you know, you might just throw something to an audience member and then they use a weird voice and make jazz hands. It's you possible. Know, like- it's possible. Those things happen and you got to roll <laughs> but, with it. But more likely, I mean, one of the things is if you are asking your audience a question with a specific answer in mind, like you need them to say yes in yeah, order great. to move on to the next part. And then what if they just like, what if they say no? Or what right. if they don't really say anything at all? Or you're like, shout yes, if you're excited, and you get like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, now all your, your energy is just like in the toilet, you know? So you have to be really careful that, you know, you're not asking a question that you need a specific answer to unless you can guarantee that that's the answer you're going to get because that unknown can really derail you. One thing to think about from the perspective of, of being a speaker is that you are a thermostat for a room. And what I mean by that is you set the temperature for the room. So if you are more high energy and more excited, then the audience tends to be like that. But if you're more mellow and quiet and subdued, then the audience tends to match that. So you set the tone for the room. And so, yeah, whenever you are doing some type of audience interaction and they're matching what it is that you are going for, it decreases that. That thermostat is adjusted and you can't control it, right? Or you've given some of the ability to control it. My wife and I, we like to argue. I like the house cold. She likes the house hot. So giving away control of that. And so you're you're doing the same type of thing whenever it comes to interacting with an audience that you lose a little bit of that control and that power that you have by having the microphone when you share and do some of those audience interactions. So it can, you know, it, it can derail things. And I think especially if you're a newer speaker and that happens, you may be less prepared for how to get it back on track. So, Grant, we've probably both had this experience where you do ask a question and maybe, I don't know, you've got a heckler or you got a horrible time slot right before lunch and people are hangry and they're not they're not playing ball, right? right? And you know, if you've been through it before, you know how to kind of say, well, normally what people would say is blah, blah, blah. And you right. just can kind of keep going. But especially if you're new, it could really rattle you. You're like, wait, I was counting on call and response here and I'm getting nothing. So yeah, it definitely can, can rattle you and you don't want to be begging your audience for interaction. So it, it's definitely a power struggle sometimes. Yeah, for sure. So whenever you're doing audience interaction, one of the things that you want to make sure that you do is that you're very, very intentional about it. Of the, There's a method to the madness and there's a reason why you want to do it. And so thinking through ahead of time, what is the point that you're wanting to make? And so some of it is just to keep people engaged, right? So from a, an audience perspective, just sitting and listening to a speaker, even a phenomenal speaker for you know, 45, 60, 90 minutes can start to get tiring. So sometimes you have these little touch points of things that you're doing with an audience just to keep them engaged, just to kind of... I remember, did you see... Um, and I don't know that I'd recommend this, but did you see the Netflix documentary with Tony Robbins from a year or so ago? I have seen it, yes. Okay. Do you remember what he did to like interrupt those pattern loops that people would have in their heads? Is this like when he calls on people or like ru- sort of runs out? I don't. I don't know. He would. He would cuss like a sailor. And <laughs> oh, I, he did say that. Yeah. I don't recommend that. 
and endorse that. But his point was that when, when you are speaking for a long period of time, the natural human tendency is to be distracted, to lose interest. And so he would do these pattern interrupts just to like bring people back. And so same type of thing that you can do without dropping F-bombs constantly <laughs> is having some of these pattern interrupts for people just to keep them engaged with, with where it is that you're going. Yeah. And in addition to being intentional, you know, with what you're doing and what it's going to achieve, also think about whether it's the right choice for that moment. Right. So, you know, you don't want to just do it for the sake of doing it. We've, I think I've seen a speaker recently where every other thing, it was sort of a rhetorical question like, well, how many of you have this? And it didn't matter what we said. It wasn't, it was just to ask the question, right? Yeah. So be careful about those things because there may be a more powerful way for you to make your point. So if what you're trying to get everyone to realize is maybe you've all had a bad boss before. So instead of saying who's had a bad boss and people are awkward, they don't know if they should say yes. My or boss maybe, is sitting next to my me. My boss is here. My right. boss paid for me to come here, right? You can just cite a statistic that says 90% of people say they've had a boss that makes them feel whatever, right? So now yeah. you're not putting the pressure on the audience to deliver your powerful statement and you're also not introducing the variable. So look for opportunities when you're asking a rhetorical question. If it's not really adding to it, See if there's another way you can make that point so you don't introduce that variable. You can also use your own experiences of, of calling from like a, a personal story or some type of personal situation. Or just if you're someone who's doing a lot of speaking, you can reference and kind of put it on a previous audience or just kind of a lump of audiences that I've spoke to in the past. You know, a lot of times in working with these other, you know, XYZ companies, I've heard these three common things that have been said to me, right? So they're kind of going, okay, yeah, this person gets us, they understand us. And so you, you could go about doing it that way as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I've actually used a reference to a past audience to kind of lighten the mood sometimes. One of the sections of my talks, I asked for an audience suggestion to kind of prove a point, like name a company you think would be difficult to make content for. And I try to show them kind of on the spot. And most of the time people give, you know, they're, they're playing ball. They're giving right. me good suggestions. They want to see, you know, we always say people want you to succeed when you're on stage. They don't want you to fail. But when people give me good suggestions, I go, oh, thank you. One time someone told me, you know, and I kind of like reference a pastime where someone wasn't so kind in that scenario. And it kind of makes them feel like, ah, yes, we're in this together. Right. So you can reference your past audiences to kind of help pull everything together, too. So one of the ways, anytime you're doing any type of interaction, it's always good to test this in a smaller type of workshop or smaller type of breakout, because you're just trying to, like you mentioned earlier, some of it is you're just trying to get some reps and some at bats, some practice to, I do this and they are supposed to do that. And I need to test and see if this actually works. And I typically don't want to be doing that if I'm doing a high stakes keynote in front of, you know, a lot of people and a really, with a really important client, I'd rather test it with 30 people in a workshop just to kind of see like, if that bombs, it sucks with a bombs, but I'd rather try it in that setting, then get on stage and try try some interaction for the first time. So it also, I think, again, the longer you're speaking, the more comfortable you start to feel in terms of the confidence of you're going to try things that aren't going to work, right? You're going to try things that are going to bomb. People aren't going to interact. You're going to tell a joke that is not funny and nobody laughs. And so, yeah, you're going to, you're going to start to be more comfortable and rolling with that and going, wow, that, that sounded funny in my head or whatever. And then you move on instead of making a big deal or, or just like completely derailing you. Yeah, definitely. I, I had this happen recently too, where we, there was just a quiet audience. It was, it was something that even the other speakers, we were noticing, like, everyone's really quiet today. Right. I don't know what it is. There's the tone in the room or maybe it's chilly in here. So it's making people feel tense. I don't know. But we did go up there and I was like, well, I had a whole bunch of jokes lined up for you all, but it seems like you really just want to keep it low key. So we'll just skip over all the laughs today. And that actually made them laugh. So you can right. kind of 
play to the tone when you when you see that too. But it was a, a smaller group, and I, I don't know that I would have taken that risk in a big keynote environment. That could be scary. Well, and to that point, like some of it is also just recognizing the group that you are speaking to and recognizing that dynamic in the room. So if you know, like. Hey, I normally do this interaction and it always works, but I've been sitting in the, you know, the, the, the session before mine for the past hour and I can just tell this is not going to work. Like you have to be aware of that and you have to be able to make those adjustments. So it reminds me, there's a, there's a Facebook group I'm in with some other speakers and one of the guys was sharing the other day that he was speaking to a group of franchisees and right before he speaks, the CEO or president of this franchise company gets up and it's says up that they are something to the effect of like they are raising the royalty that the company is getting. And so then it started some questions and then it kind of turned to them like this huge uproar. And now here's our speaker, you know, well, like in that context, if you're going into that setting, nobody's ready to play ball. Like they are pissed off at the person who just was up before you, you know? So just again, like recognizing the context of that and adjusting and adjusting accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. You got to feel the room. But the other thing you have to do is you have to help your audience out too, right? Like if you're going to go ahead and lump some responsibility on your audience in terms of how this thing is going to turn out, make sure you're telling them how to do it correctly. So a lot of times you'll see, and, and I think we've, you've probably seen these too, especially as a speaker, you start to notice it in other speakers too, right? You ask a question, but you don't tell the audience how to participate. Right, right. Who has ever blank or have you ever seen something, right? If you don't tell them, some are going to raise their hand, some are going to say yes, some are going <laughs> to just kind of laugh. Is this rhetorical? Are we supposed to do yeah, something right now? Exactly. And it can be super awkward. So try to use some key phrases to help the audience understand, like, how do I actually participate? How, how do I fulfill my end of this bargain? You could say things like by a show of hands or clap if shout yes if you can just kind of like give them instruction for how to really participate so that they're they're able to do what you need them to do yeah and claps and shouts are they're good for energy not just for the room dynamic but for people again kind of fit that physical movement of them just doing something kind of creates some some energy there a show of hands are good for for visual moments for making people realize that they're they're not alone and not only just like asking them what to do or telling them what to do but also demonstrating it so instead of saying you know hey by show of hands and keeping your hands in your pockets like by when you're saying by show of hands also raise your hand so that you're demonstrating that this is the thing that you're going to do and some of this feels feels really childish and feels really silly but again the point of this is so that you maintain control and that they're also clear on what it is that they're supposed to do. So I've done a lot of speaking with, um, in education audiences, done a lot of speaking with high school audiences. And so there's some interactions that I've done that have gone really, really well. And some that go off the rails, some that I'll do with teachers where they have to really spell out, here's the instructions. I'm going to hold you by the hand and this is what we're going to do. So on the count of three, I need you to do this, you know? So even your thing of, you know, shout yes, if, you know, it's like, yeah, yes. Oh, wait, you're not finishing yeah. the question. Wait, yes, now? Yes, no, okay. Not now, not right. now, but when I say so. Right, uh, so yeah. those little, like, again, it feels super childish, but it prevents it from being like, yeah, no, wait, now, raise hand, no. <laughs> it just becomes awkward or it goes off the rails. So really giving those very specific instructions. So as a quick example, when I was doing a lot of speaking with high school students, I would play a game. And before I would do this, I would always do this interaction where, and I'd, I'd seen some other speakers do this. So this isn't, I didn't come up with this, but speakers would say, if you can hear me clap once, and then everybody would clap. If you can hear me clap twice. 
and they do that. And then everybody would be silent, right? And so we would do this as a way to get people's attention. So I'd let them do this quick game and then I'd jump back in. All right, if you can hear me clap once, da, 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 it clap twice. Da, da. And again, it just it regroups everyone. But if I'm trying to get them to do that in the thick of the game, they're like, wait, what's, what's that? What's the heat? All right, everybody start clapping. It's like, no, 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 you're not. So just walking that through ahead of time makes a big difference. And I think, you know, you just demonstrated perfectly that that feeling when you're up there and you're trying to like gather everyone together, you're confused, yes. they're confused and or ignoring you in equal parts, right? So it is important if you are going to do any sort of activity or something to be prepared to how you're going to bring them back together and to tell them that in advance. So, you know, a lot of times we'll have that scenario where it's like a break into a group or take a minute, share with your neighbor, some sort of group activity. But what that means is they don't know when it's going to be over. Even if you say like, oh, for about 30 seconds or something like that, right? You know, people aren't counting. And if you're up there, like you were just saying like, guys, hey, clap. Um, Guys, be quiet. Listen to me. (laughs) There goes that power again, like right out the window, right? So if you were going to do something like that as a form of audience interaction, make sure you address upfront how and when you're going to gather people back together, whether it is, you know, I'm going to clap and you clap back. I'm going to clap twice, you clap twice, whether you're using some sort of gesture, you know, when my hand goes up, all of your hands go up or, you know, you have a chime, maybe you play a bell sound and that's the signal for people to quiet down. Just again, make sure you tell them up front how and when you're going to pull them back as a group. I've seen some speakers do use music too. So, all right, as soon as the music starts, you start doing your thing, whatever the interaction is. As soon as the music stops, then you stop. And so again, it feels super childish and it feels super silly and elementary, but those little instructional pieces can really make a big difference in how the interaction goes. The other thing too, that using some of those visual cues can be really helpful for is for your demo video. And so it shows you interacting with the audience. That's a powerful shot of you raising your hand and then a hundred people in the audience raising their hand with you, right? It just shows that they're engaged. Even if it's just like, you can't hear what it is that you're actually saying or what the interaction is, there is that moment of just like, wow, that speaker really has that audience there. And it shows this, this captive moment. And just so you guys know, we're walking the walk here, not just talking the talk. Even though you can't see us, we are raising our hands every time we tell you to raise your hands because it's- We're doing it. We're doing it. (laughs) So yeah, we're doing it over here. Hands up. (laughs) All right. What would be some uh, different types of scenarios or interactions that we we typically see or, or even use? Yeah. So one of the things is when you're asking someone to, to share something, you're either getting a suggestion or tell me the name of your company. You're, you're kind of getting a piece of information from them. And it can sometimes go off the rails where they feel like this is their moment to shine. You're like, yeah. Melanie, please name one <laughs> breakfast item. And I'm like, Grant, let me tell you what I know about breakfast. <laughs> Back when I was six years old and it just goes way off the rails. Right. So again, here you can kind of head this off a little bit is to, to kind of manage the expectations. And I've heard people say, it can be, you know, I need a question from you, no longer than a sentence, it ends with a question mark. Or I need uh, a suggestion, it must be one word. Or give me a two word answer to the following question. So just try to put some parameters on it so that it's clear. Because in that moment, if and when that person sort of violates that verbal contract of like, you're supposed to give a two-word question, as soon as you're, that person is not giving you a two-word question or a two-word answer, everyone else is like, hey, this guy, like, she <laughs> right. said two words, you know? So it allows you to maintain a little bit of that control and not be a bad guy when you say, hey, only two words. What are the two words you want? You know, you can right. kind of jump in because you've set those rules up front. 
The other thing too that you can do in those situations is, especially like if you're doing some type of Q&A where that's, that type of scenario might happen or just asking for suggestions, just because someone has their hand up doesn't necessarily mean you have to call on them. So there are times where in the middle of the talk, someone's hand goes up and I'm just like, in my head, I'm just like, I have not asked anything. There's no reason for you to be raising your hand right now. What are you doing? And so like, I don't have to say, you know, you can put your hand down. Like a lot of times if you just ignore them and you just keep going, there's nothing says that you have to call on them or you have to acknowledge them. Right. Or if it's the type of person where they raise their hand and you can tell like whatever they're going to say, if I call on them is not going to be good. You don't have to call on them again, like going back to the kind of that, that it's not like this trying to maintain all the, the, the power in the room, but it is in some ways of just making sure that like, listen, just because they have their hand up doesn't mean I have to call on them. And I don't want to call on this person. And then all of a sudden it's going to derail what we're doing or what we're trying to accomplish right here. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can always tell that what are the signs? Like, how do you know when it's like, this is not someone I should call on? Right. I think when I see is like someone who's way too enthusiastic and you can see that look on their face, like I'm coming, I'm coming for this question. Like that's a sign Like maybe, maybe they need to have some personal attention afterward because they've got a difficult situation. Or if someone's like waving their arms, like really trying to get your attention, you're like, wait a second. Right. (laughs) That could well, be that could be a bad. Thought. And to that point, like if I mean, if someone st- if you call on someone and they start going down this rabbit trail, or this is like a, a personal question, there's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, tell you what, why don't you just catch me right afterwards and let's talk about this?" So that way, again, you're not again, monopolizing, you're not- you know, the entire conversation for for everybody else, and they're going like, "This has nothing to do with with yeah. anything." Another way to kind of head that kind of thing off is to say, I think I understand your question or I understand your question. It's a way to say like, I don't need additional detail. Like I've got enough already. Right. You know. And- and you can acknowledge that they've got more to say, but that you've, you've got what you need. Right. Another thing too, in those situations where someone's asking the, like the non-question question is if they, you know, they go on for like, sometimes they're just, they're nervous, you know, like I just been called on and I just like five seconds ago, I had this perfectly formulated thing in my head and now it's all gone and I'm just, I'm nervous and I'm not really sure what to do or what to say. And so sometimes they may just go on and on and it doesn't end in a question mark. And so you can just ask them, Hey, so what's your question? How can I best help you? Right. So just like helping them to like, all right, let's full stop. Now let's regroup. So what's your question? What is it that you need help with? And that's something I, I use a lot, even just in kind of one-on-one situations with people who are kind of going on and on and on. Okay. Got the context, got the backstory. Where do you need help? How can we best help you? What's, how do we best utilize this time? The other thing that will happen sometimes is maybe the question that they ultimately come up with after they're, you know, sharing their, their perspective there is something so incredibly specific that you're a little concerned it may only apply to them, right? Yeah. Like it's not something that's going to help the entire audience. So one of the things you can do, and, and you know, this is true for any time you're doing audience interaction, if you're getting a suggestion or you're getting people to chime in and, you know, it's not leading to exactly where you want it to go, there's some easy ways to kind of universalize a response or make it apply to a broader answer. So you can kind of reflect it back to them, but make sure it applies to a large group with phrases like, for many of you, this might mean, et cetera. Or if that's not your situation, you might also be wondering this. So you can kind of address their very, very specific question or their very specific suggestion while also pivoting to something broader that's going to you know, bring value to a much bigger section of your audience. And that kind of thing happens a lot. And if you're in some type of Q&A type of setting or even like something where, hey, anybody have any thoughts on this and people are adding their thoughts, depending again on the size of the room, it's always worth repeating that back because just because 
you know, it's a small group doesn't necessarily mean everybody heard it. Or if it's the type of thing where they've kind of gone on for a minute or two and you just kind of need to summarize it and put a bow on it so everybody knows, you know, what just happened there. That's fine too. So just repeating that back. The other thing too, that repeating it back does is it buys you time, right? As you're just kind of like processing, okay, how do I answer this in a tactful way? Or how do I do this without crushing this person's hopes and dreams or whatever (laughs) it may be? then it just gives you a minute there to kind of regroup and gather your own thoughts before, before going into them. Yeah, I definitely. And it's, this is something that I use a lot. I don't know, Grant, what are your thoughts? Are you big on audience interaction? I know when it comes to slides, we have very different opinions, but uh, what are your thoughts on audience interaction? Is this something you do a lot? So a lot of it depends again on the context, right? So, and it depends on who you're speaking to and what it is that you're speaking about. So I, I think the longer that you speak, the more often that you need to be using some type of interaction to break it up for an audience. But for me, if I'm doing, let's say a, you know, a, a 45 or 60 minute keynote for a bigger audience, I may do a lot of show of hands if that type of thing, I'll do a lot of those little things, but I may not do as much as of the bigger things of, of breaking into groups or, you know, let's all turn to your neighbor and tell them they're deep the starkest secret, you know, or whatever it may be. <laughs> and one thing I don't remember exactly who I learned this from, but I heard the idea that a lot of times your audience interaction should be in proportion to the amount of trust that you've earned with an audience, right? And so what that means is in the first couple of minutes of you speaking, you need to do, you have very little trust built with that audience, very little rapport with them. So the things that you should be doing with them in terms of audience interaction should be very low risk for you and for them. So it should be things like, hey, by show of hands, how many of you have da-da-da? You know, how many of you guys had a, you know, have an enjoy the conference? Let me see your hand. You know, any of those type of like just little low risk softball type of questions, right? Now, the longer you're interacting with them and the more you've built some trust and built some rapport, then you can, all right, we may break into groups or we may... You know, hey, let's talk about a situation. Let's talk about the situation where the guy introducing me just told you guys you all need to pay more money. Let's talk about that for a second, right? Because you've built some (laughs) rapport and connection, but you can't come out with that. Like you can't lead with that. Otherwise, they're like, we don't know who you are. Like we don't have any, we have zero trust with you, you know? So a good example is a, a buddy of mine he did a lot with, with high school programs with like small groups. And so he would go into a school and work with a small group of students, but would work with them for like five days, right? So, and the point of it was he, this program was called Breaking Down the Walls. And he was trying to get all these students from all these different backgrounds and all these different cliques and groups within the school to get to know each other better, right? To kind of understand who these, you know, one another are. And so by day one, it's a bunch of people who barely know each other. And by day five, everybody's sobbing and we're best friends forever, you know, but that takes time to get there. So the interactions that you can get to on day five of a small group, long, intensive type of, of program is very, very different than you do in the first 15 minutes of, you know, of a keynote. So, so building that trust and making sure that the interactions that you're doing are in alignment with the trust, the amount of trust that you've earned. Yeah, it's not altogether different from if you needed to ask to borrow money, right? right like right. you needed a quarter, you could probably ask a stranger for that without it being so weird, right? Like you dropped your wallet. If you needed a dollar, like, all right, that's a little bit of a bigger ask. If you need to borrow a thousand dollars for something, like there's a pretty, you know, you, right. you need to go for those people you've built some trust and relationship with. So, you know, it just, it's, it's the same thing. You're building a relationship with the audience over time. And by, especially if you're asking them to share something of their own, that's a vulnerable experience for them. We're used to being vulnerable up on stage, but our audience is not. So we right. need to help them get to that point if we're asking them to, to give value like that and, and be vulnerable with a, with a stranger, with their neighbor or with everyone. 
we've kind of been talking about in the context of, of Q&A or maybe some individual responses. Do you ever do anything where you're breaking people up into groups or discuss this, you know, amongst yourselves or anything like that other than just a, a, a Q&A or kind of one-off interaction? I don't like to do a lot of the group stuff. And I think part of that is a function of the type of sessions that I do. Oftentimes, the folks who are in my sessions are the only representative from their company, and they all come from very different backgrounds. So I find that the groups, they sometimes will just get caught up in talking about one or the other person's thing. It won't really be a great exchange. So I do a lot of take a few minutes by yourself in a workshop environment, you know, think about this, and then come back and we'll share some of the things we come up with. But I want them to be focused I do a lot of asking for suggestions, call and response to a question, but usually to something that I've already introduced. So it's not just like hoping that someone knows what percentage of something, you know, hoping they know a fact or a stat. But remember earlier, I said there was one key thing. What is that one key thing? You know, Mm -hmm. kind of bringing them back to something that's already been introduced. It increases, like we talked about earlier, the likelihood that someone's going to give you that right answer because you've already primed them to know what it is and how to respond. Yeah. Good stuff. Any final words of wisdom for people that are going, all right, I've dabbled with this. I want to do more interactions with the audience there, but I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, making myself look like an idiot. Yeah. I think the first thing, again, like we said, just ask yourself, why am I doing this? Right? Like, why am I soliciting feedback and interaction with the audience? What do I hope to accomplish? Am I sure that this is going to accomplish it or this is the best way to accomplish it? And then you just got to put those you know, you just got to have those reps, go out there, try it, test it out, test with a small audience, see how it goes. It's not unlike a comedian. You know, you go yep. to some open mic nights, you see how those those jokes land and you, you keep going on with the ones that work well. It's also helpful to watch other speakers and see what interactions that they do and see not necessarily what it is that they're doing, but kind of the thought process behind it of how it is they are managing an audience and how it is that they are maintaining control and how it is that they're getting the feedback and the answers that they want. And so building relationships with other speakers, asking them to do what they're doing. And it doesn't mean that you have to just blatantly copy them of I'm saying this verbatim because I saw them do this and it worked, but just paying attention to what it is that they're doing and kind of the thought process behind it. So one thing we kind of touched on was like doing Q&A and the pros and cons of that. We actually have a previous podcast episode, episode 91. I would definitely encourage people to go check out if you want to dig into that more on how to do Q&A and when it makes sense and when it, when it doesn't make sense. So, all right, Melanie, good stuff. Appreciate the time. Yeah, yours too. All right, there you go. There's uh, episode 186 between myself and Melanie talking all about audience interaction. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Once again, Melanie will be joining us again next week on episode 187. And so before we get there, though, a reminder that we've got some more of these uh, episodes scheduled in the future, more of these co-hosted episodes. And so if you like these, let us know. And if you have a specific subject or topic that you'd like to hear Melanie and I discuss, then please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. All right, that uh, wraps up episode 186. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome. Awesome.